0: Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is your host, Spencer Martin. This week, we are going to talk about Torreno-Adriatico, which is wrapped up today with Woot Van Aert winning the final stage and Tadej Pogacar winning the overall. Woot Van Aert actually did win it this time, not like last week, where I said he won Chata Bianchi when I meant to say Matthew Vanderpool. Um, and at Perry Nies, which wrapped up on Sunday, Max Schachman won the race for the second year in a row uh, after, ta- after Primoz Roglic like, spectacularly crashed twice in the final. 55-mile stage, which is incredibly short for a pro cycling race, and lost the like squandered like a minute lead spectacularly. Can't believe that happened. But first, if you want to support the podcast, uh, check out the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. I have a free edition that comes weekly. Um, If you enjoy the podcast, you should absolutely sign up for that. You'll love it and there is a paid version daily during grand tours and like tri-weekly the rest of the year and it comes with discount to brands like Stage of Cycling and Cure of Switzerland. Uh, You get like 20% off on both of those brands and if you sign up in the near future you'll get a free year of Strava Premium so check that out now at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. But first let's talk about Torino just because it's fresh in my mind. I just watched the end of Stage 7 some of these get confusing they're both week long stage races i think peronice has 8 stages and terreno adriatico has 7 so it's all it's all very confusing but uh stage 7 was at short tt like 10k tt which was won by woot van art even though i would have bet tons of money that filippo ganna was going to win so i'm glad i didn't not get around to putting on that bet but van art uh wins I guess he's a great time trialist. It makes sense. If you remember, he got second at the 2020 World Time Trial Championships behind Filippo Ghana. So it kind of makes sense that he won, but I was shocked. I was really shocked. And, and Ghana didn't even get second. He got uh, third behind Stefan Kung, who finished six seconds behind Wout Van Art, with Ghana a further five seconds behind Kung. And then, shockingly—not shockingly—we need to— we need to change our expectations here, but Tade Pogacar gets fourth on the stage, only 12 seconds behind Wout Van Aert, the stage winner, and only a single second behind Filippo Ghana, who's probably, you could argue, one of the strongest time trialists of all time. So we're dealing, and this was like a pancake flat 10-kilometer time trial, so this should be terrible for Tade Pogacar. This is like pure power, weight. You can have as much muscle on your body as you want. It's not going to slow you down. Uh, the big guys should just be like hammering this. I mean, Philippe Bagan is probably 80 kilos. Van Art, 78 kilos. Philippe Bagan is 82 kilos. That's, that's really big. That's like my size. Um, Teddy Pogacar is 66 kilos. <laughs> and he's, he's going pedal stroke for pedal stroke with these guys. It's super impressive. Um, and this, this will be relevant because when we get to the Tour de France, there's 58 kilometers of individual time trialing. And if you remember, like Matt White, who's the GM at now Team Bike Exchange, was saying, oh, this is, uh, Pokachar's not going to win because there's too much time trialing. But it's like, oh, wait a second. He is one of the best time trialists in the world and also the best climber in the world. So uh, <laughs> that's going to be pretty, pretty good for, for the 21, 2021 tour. Like all this time trialing is just going to help him. It, it's also silly to think that it wouldn't because... He won the 2022 Tour de France in the time trial, like specifically rode the rest of the race not as fast as Primoz Roglic, and then just crushed the time trial. So yeah, that's crazy that that was ever a thought that he the time trial wouldn't suit him. I just have some, some notes from this final stage, I and mean, these are kind of boring. The final two stages. It was a great race overall, super exciting. Like I said last week, that terrano Adriatico is not my cup of tea. Uh, I was wrong. This, this edition was awesome. Stages one through five were amazing. Um, well, we'll touch on a few notes from those stages, but stage six was like total students fest because the race had been so hard that Peloton just let a breakaway go. Mads Wirtz Schmidt, uh, from Denmark, second Mads to win a world Tour race this year. Wait, I don't know if Mads Pedersen has won a world Tour race, but second Mads to win a professional race this year. Uh, wins it out of the breakaway it's kind of relevant because he won the 2015 u23 world uh, time trial championships which normally that's a great example of why those results can be misleading you think like oh like he's going to be a star and i this is his biggest win since 2015 so it, it just goes to show you those are those races aren't necessarily per, great predictive events about who's going to go on to become a star and who isn't uh But this is like a, he rides for Israel Startup Nation. I mean, they're going to need all the wins they can get this year, especially since their core of the team is Chris Faroom, who is probably not going to win a bike race all year. Uh, So these are key, key, key wins. And I I have to think this is the second time they've done this, like in eight months, where they've gotten a rider in a breakaway when they probably know the Peloton's not going to chase with their whole heart because they're so tired and the race has been so tough. And the, the breakaway wasn't even, getting, wasn't even close to getting pulled back. They stay away by like over a minute. Mads wins the sprint out of the break. I mean, it's a great way to win a race. It's like, that's if I was advising a team on how to steal wins, I mean, that's exactly how you do it. You don't have to go, you, you can't go head to head against Woot Van Aert in that sprint and win. So it's just a fantastic way to look at like different ways to win. And one other note from that stage is Felipe Ogana did get dropped. Um, It wasn't a particularly tough stage. So maybe there was a sign right there that he wasn't quite himself. Um, And then to finish with the 10K TT, I guess in theory is, 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 is like could, could be exciting. I feel like the, I feel like the race never changes hands on this final, this final TT. So I find it a bit boring, but this is actually kind of an interesting, interesting stage. I thought Ghana was going to go off early and get a huge lead and just win. And the rest of the race would be kind of pointless, but uh, with Ghana not doing that, and then Woot Van Aert being the second to last rider and winning, and then Pogachar showing us that we really need to, you know, think about him seriously as a world class time trialist. Uh, there was definitely some interesting little nuggets in there. Uh, Garrett Thomas was 28 seconds behind Woot Van Aert, which is a big problem because if you remember on stage, Uh, five. Sorry, stage four. The summit finish, really tough summit finish, like a real, real, real alpine climb. He gets dropped, like by Wout Van Aert, who he shouldn't be dropping him. I mean, Wout Van Aert's at 78 kilos right now, according to the team. So that that's big. That's really big. You should not be climbing mountains that fast at that size. That means he's putting out massive amounts of watts, and he's only gonna get only gonna lose weight before the Tour de France because he's a little bit heavier because and cross, you want a little bit more muscle. So if Garrett Thomas can't stay with him on those climbs, and Garrett Thomas got dropped from like the whole pel- or like the whole front group, that's that's an issue. And can't time trial with their best guys. I just don't see a path to success there, especially if, he, if they want him to lead at the Tour de France, they need to come up with a plan B right now because it's not gonna work. And this isn't like the old gate days where you know, Thomas and Vincenzo Nibali, and even Chris Froome, their form would just like, it would change so drastically throughout the year. But this younger generation just seems to always be at such a high level where, you know, in the old days, you'd say, oh, so, so much, so much could change between now and Tour de France. But it's like, hey, if you can't stay with Tadej Pogachar and, and even Vuitton now, you're not going to be able to stay with them in July. So They need to start coming up the plan right now. And that could be Richard Carapaz. We haven't seen him race yet this year. I have no idea what he is or where he is or what he's doing. It's kind of odd he is not raced. I guess he's going to lead the team at Volta Catalunya that starts next weekend. But he just doesn't have the time trial ability. I mean, 58 kilometers of time trials, you got to win the Tour de France this year, you're going to have to be a great time trialist. So alarm bells should be going off over at Ineos. And even... They, they've actually been pretty poor in time trials this year. I mean, Ghana's kind of spackled over some of the cracks, but Rowan Dennis was, was very bad in the Perry nice time trial. And Ghana, I mean, when you looked at his watts today, they were like putting a little watt meter up on the, on the TV screen, and he was just putting out like between, it seemed like he was between five and 600 watts every time they showed him, just sustained. And he gets blown out. So you're like, well, it's hard to imagine that Woot Van Aert Average 600 watts in that time trial. So is there something going on with the equipment that's slowing them down? Are they, they get too experimental with skin suits and that's causing a lot of frontal drag? I don't I don't quite know, but the team is is definitely struggling this year. I it's I guess it, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that their former team doctor just was found guilty by a medical tribunal of ordering testosterone for riders at some point in the past. So we can't rule out that maybe they were using something and now they've lost access to it because they're under a little bit of heat. I don't know. Definitely doesn't look good that they're kind of cratering. Their performances seem to be cratering, Uh, except for Egan Bernal, who is the most talented rider on the team, who's also having some issues. We'll talk about him in a little bit. But yeah, it's not great that this is happening, that it's coming to light that they ordered testosterone to use on riders, and then now when it's all coming to light, they are suddenly not as good as they used to be. Not a great sign. Um, other things about Torreno, yeah, the average, the average difference between first and second, you're seeing that the gaps were huge. The second largest gap between first and second and the last 10 years. And even when we go, that's almost misleading, because when we, it was a minute and three seconds between Pogachar and Wout Van Aert, but between Wout Van Aert and Mikael Landa, who was third, it's, it's a further two minutes, essentially. So, you can imagine if, if Tade Pogachar wasn't here, Wout Van Aert wins, sorry, it's a further three minutes. So, if Pogachar didn't show up, Wout Van Aert wins this thing by three minutes over Mikael Landa, um, and then Vernal's right behind him. So... Huge gaps, which shows you how hard the racing was. There was that bunch bunch sprint on stage one that Wout Van Aert won. Uh, Kind of a formulaic stage, but it it still looked really hard. And then stages two, three, four, five were all just like leg breakers. I mean, it was like no days off until that stage six sprint sprint finish. Um, Slovenian riders have now won nine of the last 12 World Tour stage races, which is crazy, which should be 10 if... uh, Roglic wouldn't have fallen off his bike on Sunday and I mean Matthew Vanderpool uh looked amazing through on stages three and five he probably should have won stages stage two but he was in poor position sets up like this interesting thing where Woot Van Aert went stage one and seven so him and Vanderpool have equal amount of stage wins at the races and there was almost it's like uh when one is great, that the other can't be great um I mean woot art got third he was kind of competing against him on some of these uphill sprint finishes, but they just were clearly not in the same league on finishing speed, but it's like what it's crazy right when you think woot art's out, he's back in where it's like well, he's a little fried uh he he had to basically pull the whole peloton on stage four because his yumbo team was just trash all week, so bad, it's actually crazy they didn't send. Um, anyone to help him seemingly. Sepp Kuss and Jonas Vindegaard are at home, I guess, training. It's it's crazy they, di- they didn't send anyone here to really help him. So on the stage four summit finish, he's just by himself for the last 8K, setting pace as a race leader, trying to keep Tadej Pogacar close once he attacks. Um, so yeah, considering all that, it's amazing he gets two stages. Uh, it's also very... Very interesting Vanderpool gets two stages it sets up this this nice narrative before the real one day races kick on this spring. but on one hand you know on one hand that's interesting on the other hand they, they do seem to be diverging as riders a little bit where Vanderpool is definitely more seems more focused on one day races where a fast finish either a fast uphill finish is necessary or just a 50k solo breakaway because on stage five there it was. A tough circuit. I guess there was like a long bit before they got into the circuit, but I just started watching the circuit. It was rainy, really hard, really, really hard circuit. Um, Vanderbilt attacks with 52K to go and he's eating while he's doing it. I have a screenshot in the newsletter. It's absurd. I've never seen anything like this. A rider who just attacks while eating uh, immediately got a gap. And so, I mean, obviously, this, this is actually, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if he was doing it on purpose or he just rode off the front while he was eating. But he decides to keep going, which is really savvy because the day before he had lost like 21 minutes on purpose so that he would have, you know, he would, A, just not use energy because he was riding slowly, but B, he would have the, the freedom to do this. Uh, Pogacar and art wouldn't sell out to pull him back. And, in, you know, he dangles like 10, 20 seconds out the front. And there's definitely a point where there's like, hey, screw this. Let's let him go. And we're just going to focus on each other. He builds up like a three-minute, no, four-minute lead between kilometers 50 and 20 to go. And then at 17K to go, Pogachar attacks Woot Van Aert, who has like 30, at the time Pogachar has a 35-second lead, overall lead on Woot Van Aert. But there's a time trial coming up. I mean, both of them had amazing time. Tra- I mean, Pogacar had an amazing time trial today and still lost 12 seconds. So he was probably was worried like, well, if I have a slightly bad day, I could lose 40 seconds to this guy in a TT and lose the race overall. I want more time. So he attacks on a little uphill kick with 17K to go. He gets, gets, immediately gets a gap. Woot Van Art doesn't even try to respond. And, and the thing that really amazes me about Van Art is when he looks out, like I thought he was cooked right here. But he just kind of like can slowly up that pace. And he just held the gap at around 35 seconds. Um, He caught two guys eventually, but then dropped them and had to work by himself. And at the end, I mean, I think Pogachar only finishes with, you know, a 39-second gap on him. So that means for the last 20K, they're just basically both doing individual time trials. Pogachar looks so much stronger just visibly, but Wood is able to save what really could have been like a complete implosion. So I thought that was amazing. Um, Vanderpool apparently was, just, I, I was reading that he couldn't even put out like 200 watts in the climbs in the last 20 K. And it showed because he had a four minute lead essentially on, I guess, three minute, 42nd lead on Bogachar with 17 K to go by 10 K to go, the leads down to less than two minutes. And then with a K to go, it's down to 13 seconds. So it, that thing is just tumbling. I've actually never seen, I have, don't think I've ever seen anything like that where a rider builds up such a big lead so fast and then it just crumbles with a single chasing rider, just one guy hunting him down. Um, I mean, obviously, it was thrilling. It's like one of those things where you're watching and you're just like, well, that's, that's interesting. Huh, that's a lot less. And then with like the last 5K, it's like, oh my God, he's going to catch him. Oh wow, he's going to catch him. Uh, he ended up holding him off. He, Vanderbilt had a pretty good final kilometer, which was uphill. So with a 13-second gap with a K-long climb, I mean, you could easily lose that, easily. So he does a great job to hold off uh, Pogachar. I think he finishes 10 seconds in front of him, so he only lost three seconds in the final kilometer. Uh, he was, was really dead at the line. I mean, and he went on to do nothing for the next two stages, which makes a lot of sense because... He was probably really fried from that. He said he attacked because he was cold. Uh, which kind of sounds ridiculous, right? Because you're like, just put on clothes. What are you, what are you doing? But at that point, I, I was surprised how much the Peloton was just in summer kits. They just like looked like a freezing cold day with rain. And no one had gloves on. No one really had jackets on. Maybe it was nicer earlier. I mean, there was a thing in bike racing or even just riding in general where you can really only put clothes. You can only take clothes off. like. Once you're on the bike and you're cold and you're wet, adding clothes does very little. I mean, putting on a pair of gloves might help you some, but once you get chilled, you're done. So I actually don't hate that. I kind of like that attack. If if you're cold, and at least if you're solo, you're going to stay warmer than the chasers who are drafting a little bit. Um, it's obviously an insane thing to do. Like you wouldn't recommend that to anyone, but it worked out. I mean, he was able to stay warm and functioning until the last 10k. But I think back in the group, I mean, those guys looked miserable. Like Woot Van Aert looked absolutely miserable. He looked cooked from the cold. I mean, Alaphilippe sat up essentially and just put on a bunch of clothes and looked like he was having the worst day ever. Egan Bernal tried to put on a jacket, couldn't do it, and got dropped eventually. And it's debatable to me if, I mean, Pogachar was going so fast in the last 10k, which was hard. I mean, there was some, some steep kickers. I mean, even when he attacked Woot Van Aert with 17k to go, not totally clear to me that Vanderpol could have hung on. I mean, Vanderpol's very good, probably the best rider in the world at the moment. No one's better at climbing than Pogachar. I mean, you can be as strong as you want, but you're not staying with Tattoo Pogachar, as he proved the day before in that summit finish. And that final kick to the line, I mean, there's no guarantees that Vanderpool hangs with, with Pogachar on that. So he he stays away, he wins. It look kind of looks like a crazy ill advised move, but I definitely didn't hate it. I, I do think there's some method to his madness there, and and if he gets caught, well, that's just a good training day. We have San Ramo coming up on Saturday, this coming Saturday. It's a long race. He, I mean, there's nothing better for you before races like that than just long. I assume just barely sub threshold. Um, I mean, it must have been a two hour attack. So for most people, sub threshold would be like two, in the two hundreds of watts, but Vanderpool is probably sitting like. 400 watts for two hours that's pretty good training so if he gets caught it's it's actually low risk um, I didn't think he had a ton to lose there the finish suited Pogachar better than him so I like that move a lot Pogacar I was talk about the day previous I'm doing this out of order it's like a Tarantino movie it's a ter- terrible structure to this podcast the day before stage four was a summit finish like a real real summit finish um, Tade Pogachar attacks wins uh, really, no surprise there. I mean, he's the strongest GC rider in the world right now. I mean, there's like Primos Roglic. We'll talk about him in a second. He looks better than ever. And just there's, there's no, there's really no argument that Pogochar is better than him, um, which is really something. I mean, Ineos, with 10K to go, the climb was like 16K. So 6K into the climb, they have like six riders. It looks like, you know, we're in a time machine. The table's set for them. They're just going to grind people down. Bernal is going to attack and drop everyone. But with 8 by 8K to go, they're down to four riders. Two of them got dropped. And then with 7.8K to go, Egan Bernal attacks, pulls out Pogachar, who, who follows him easily, and he gets pulled back. 7K to go, Garrett Thomas attacks, who's like their co leader. Doesn't work. They, they. I mean, Woot Van Aert just kind of sits on the front. It was, it was like watching the inverse of what's been happening for the last ten years, where any is just desperately attacking. Woot Van Aert's sitting on the front, just you know, riding a solid five hundred watts, probably just pulling him back. There's nothing you can do at that point. If someone's riding that strong in a steady state effort, you can't get away from them. There's no attack you can do that's strong enough to get away. Um, and then like what, what was kind of. Shocking to me is like watching Ineos in such a just such a flailing. They kind of they look like Movistar out there. Like Movistar's just has this trident strategy with three leaders, and they do these like completely doomed attacks. We all know they're not going to work. They seem not to have you know they never really seem to know what the others doing, and that's exactly what happened here because. When Thomas gets caught, first of all, Pogochar attacked up to Thomas. It was like a leapfrog effect where he waited for Thomas to get like 10 seconds off the front of the Peloton, attacks because he knows that he can bridge that gap easily, but that it's far enough away that once he's up there, he has a nice gap on the rest of the chasers and he can kind of do, he'll do like a moment of rest and then attack again and the race will be over. And that's exactly what happened. But then what's worse is Thomas gets caught with like 4K to go and Bernal counterattacks, it drops Thomas, Bernal gets caught, gets dropped, so now, instead of consolidating behind a single rider and having that other rider just, just sit there and pace the other one so they can finish maybe at the same time as the chasing group or the front group, and or at least limit their losses, they both get dropped and, and lose time, and then at one point, Bernal's trying to catch back on to the group he's been dropped from, It looks like he gets a call from the radio just to sit up and wait for Thomas. Like he almost just stops pedaling right away, Uh, sits up and then paces Garrett Thomas. But then Garrett Thomas loses 20 minutes the following day on that difficult circuit we just talked about. So at that point, you just wasted, Bernal could have saved a few seconds on that. He probably could have podium. He missed the podium by like six seconds in this race. So every second mattered at this point. You know, you, They either asked him to sit up for Thomas or he thought that that was the right thing to do. And it cost him dearly. I mean, this lack of strategy is just going to continue to plague them. It, but the worst thing, the worst thing, worse than the strategy is they're just not strong enough anymore. I mean, Egan Bernal at his best is probably not even in the same league as Tadej Pogachar, at at least low altitude climbs. I mean, just the watts per kilos he can do. And then you think about Woot Van Aert. I mean, that's, that's got to keep you up at night if you're running Ineos. You're the richest team in the world and you probably have this, your budget is probably twice as big as the second biggest budget and you don't have the best riders. I mean, that's a big problem. I mean, because Wout van Aert dropped two Tour de France winners, the 2018 Tour de France winner and Garrett Thomas and the 2019 Tour de France winner and Egan Bernal. Just straight up dropped him on an alpine climb. That's a problem, especially when he's, he's at 78 kilos. He's probably going down to 74, 75 by the Tour. I don't know what you do about that. And that's not it. And what's worse is that's not even your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is Taddy Pogacar, who doesn't have to lose any weight. He's always at his race weight because he's just built, I guess, perfectly for a Grand Tour rider. And he can also time trial. So you really they don't really don't have an advantage at any point. So it's a huge issue. Um, and we, we look at a, just kind of a fun thought experiment with Wout van Aert at least is you look at the first week of this Tour de France coming up. Uh, it's like a hilly stage the first day, let's be honest Vanderpool's probably going to win that but I bet Woot Van Aert a top 3, I bet he gets some uh, time bonus the second stage is like a steep, it's like a K-long steep, steep summit finish you know, Vanderpool could win that, but that's a, that's a good stage for for Woot or Tadej Pogacar, but Woot probably finishes on the podium, gets more time bonuses 3 and 4 are sprints, which Woot Van Aert could win both of those, we've seen he's Probably the second best bunch burner in the world behind Sam Bennett. Stage five is a time trial, so Woot Van Aert probably has the yellow jersey coming on a stage five, and you start to wonder, like, you know, he could hold this thing into the third week or, or longer. He could win the tour, you know, if you if he can limit his losses in the climbs enough. How does and then how does Jumbo handle that? I think that's kind of an interesting little little uh, thing to think about. And then it, will there will there be any? You know, at one point, if Woot gets dropped and Roglic is up the road, is, is Roglic supposed to wait for him? Like, what, how does that play out there? So um, I, I was I was super unimpressed. We'll talk about Peronis nice now, but I was really unimpressed with Jumbo's inability to support, or at least disinterest, and even sending riders that could support Woot at Torino. Um, there's I mean, maybe there's nothing he could have done. He, he probably can't beat Pogachar anyway, but at least send him there with some support. That was... It was pretty pathetic on stage four watching the strongest team in the world from last year just unable to keep anyone up there with their leader. Um, I mean, just big takeaways. Vanderpool's amazing. Ala Philippe is, it's funny. It's, uh, you think of it as like a three headed monster where it's like Vanderpool, Van Arte, Van Ala Philippe. But if you think about Ala Philippe, he wins one stage and then he's not able to hang on the, on the big alpine climb. And he taps out on the cold day, where Woot Van Aert's there every day. Every day just fighting for seconds. And Vanderpol is kind of eating Alaphilippe's lunch on these steep uphill finishes. I mean, you saw at Strada Bianchi, Alaphilippe's supposed to be the best in the world at that. And he just got roasted by Woot Van, or Matthew Van Matthew Vanderpool. So Alaphilippe could be suffering from a bit of an identity crisis, you know, if this continues where Woot steals his lunch as like the outsider... GC option and Vanderpool is disrupting him from the other end, where he's now like the exciting one-day rider who can sprint uphill really fast. Uh, definitely something to keep an eye on there. So Perry Nice, uh, which was absurdly running at the same time. It's like impossible to watch both of these races. I don't know really what the strategy is there. It's like you split two of the like two races, split the most exciting riders in the world between two events. They kind of finish at the same time. It's really difficult to watch. You have to have two screens running, really, to soak it all in. Not ideal. But Paris-Nice, I'd say the more prestigious race, like, uh, hands down. Usually the much better race, just a much harder race in general. This year it was kind of flipped on its head. I mean, not that Paris-Nice was easy, but Torreno definitely had the action. It definitely helped. They had Alaphilippe, Van der Poel, and Wout Van Aert, <laughs> and the defending Tour de France champion, who happens to be a super exciting rider as well. Um, And then Nice just kind of had Prima's Roglic. And then Matt Shackman, who won the race last year, but despite being an incredibly talented rider, gets absolutely no respect. And partly because he's kind of, he doesn't really, does not ride with flair. You don't really notice he's there until he's won won the race. Um, But Roglic was just dominating at this thing. I mean, Perry Nice has won by, I mean, the average gap between first and second is like in the last 10 years, it's like 20 seconds or less. I mean, in 2017, it was a two second race at the end of a week. I mean, that's crazy. 2016, four second race, you know, last year was 18 seconds deciding first and second. So it's, there's, there's real tight margins here. Um, so it was crazy that going into the final stage, Ruglitch had a 52, 52 second gap over Shackman. So, I mean, it was just a Ruglic show all week. He won three stages. He won stages four six and seven i mean there was a lot of a lot of these were layups for him they're just like uphill stages either small summit finishes or i think stage six was like an uphill sprint finish that he just roasted. i mean that's he just roasted people it shows you like he's so versatile he's he's able to climb high high mountains you know with either either be the best or second best rider in the world and borderline bunch sprints that are slightly uphill He can win against much, much bigger riders and more powerful on paper. But, and that's kind of his, his trump card is he, I mean, after the TT, he is a, I believe a 16 second cap over Shackman. He, he puts 14 seconds into Shackman on the road between that and stage seven, but his lead balloons out to 52 seconds from time bonuses. And this is a thing, I mean, I'll, I don't want to drift into this too much because I think it's a silly argument, but so on stage seven, he mows down Gino Mater in the final kilometer to win the stage, and he drops Shackman by two seconds. So he pulls out Shackman. Mater acts as a nice little, almost like a, like a pick or something where he just like blows by, Sh- blows by Mater, but Shackman can't get by him, so Mater eats up that second place time bonus. So his delta to Shackman was six seconds so he gets six seconds in time bonus plus two minutes two seconds from real time that's eight seconds right there i mean that's golden in perry nice. as we just discussed the 2016 and 17 editions were won by total of less than that they were won by six seconds added together so eight seconds is a big freaking deal at perry nice. um there was this narrative that he shouldn't have mode made her down in the end, because it was, I guess, mean and greedy, because he had already won two stages before. I'm sorry, but that's A, the point of professional sports is to win. Like, what are you doing if you're not here to win? But B, he needs that time. I mean, that's not an insignificant amount of time. And we just saw, we came off a year where all three Grand Tours were won by, all three were won by less than a minute. So it's crazy to sit here and say you should give up time or not drop a rival or not win and get time bonuses to be nice. I don't know. It made no sense. The argument makes absolutely no sense. It's idiotic. It shows a fundamental misunderstanding. And, and this is even coming from pe- some people inside the sport. But it does touch on something interesting where teams keep... Yumbo was not strong. Yumbo was bad all week. They were just good because of Roglic. Roglic was good despite them. Um, he was doing everything himself. Jumbo was not strong enough to pull back that breakaway on stage seven. The smart thing to do as like Bora or Astana would be just to not to pull it back. Just don't do anything. Let those riders up the road eat up the time bonuses. And this is pertinent for, if, if people want to beat him in Grand Tours and he's going to race the Tour, i will probably race the Vuelta, then th- that's the strategy you have to employ. You have to realize you can't beat him on these uphill finishes and you don't have someone on your team that can do it either. There's not like, Oh, we have Mark Hershey. He can out sprint on these uphill finishes and take time bonuses. Cause he can't. Cause Rockledge is so freaking good. You can't do it. Um, teams they just don't, they fail to realize this. And by pulling that break back, that's exactly, they, they, Allowed him to, I mean, they, they allowed him to get the time bonus, but they incentivized him to attack Shackman and put that two seconds into him in real time on the road. If those guys are coming in and it's, you know, they're, they're racing for ninth and 10th place and there's no time bonuses, he probably doesn't drop Shackman there. And, and this is just one example, but this, I could just go back. The guys gained, I think, two and a half minutes in the last two years just in time bonuses. And if you remember, he rode the Volta slower than Carapaz, only won the race because of time bonuses. We're talking about things that decide grand tours. This is like super important, but yet teams fail to realize this like all the time. It's so frustrating. Um, I I believe there's in the media there's a big big anti-Roglic bias. I think it's a bit of anti-Eastern Europeanism, even though you could argue that Slovenians are Central European, not Eastern European. But they were behind the Iron Curtain, so I think that there is a little bit of that. In the, especially in the British media, where anything that's Eastern European is bad, is seen as bad, and probably doped, and probably illegal, and they're not nice. But British writers are the moral compass of the universe, and anything they do is right. I mean, that's, there's definitely a hint of that in the way he's covered. But it also extends, it's something that's more specific to Ruglitch, because Pogachar was celebrated for almost chasing down Vanderpoel at Terreno adriatico. Of course, he didn't catch him. Maybe that's what made it so fun. But I bet if he caught him, there wouldn't have been calls to say like, "Oh, Pogachar's so mean; he shouldn't be catching Vanderpool." This guy's just out there trying to make a living, and this meanie is is catching him. I did see a lot of like, "Oh, there was this. This is like violating the unwritten code. Like, wh- when does this ever happen? Like, we know Lance Armstrong gifted Marco Pantani the Mont 2 stage in the 2000 tour I believe that was so that's once that that happened but Armstrong grew to regret that like two days later because Pantani was so embarrassed that he was gifted the stage that he got pissed at Armstrong and tried to he almost knocked Armstrong out of that tour with a few long-range attacks that Armstrong responded to and then bonked and almost lost the race because of it so yeah, I think if Lance could do that again, he wouldn't gift them to the stage. It was seen as like a huge blunder. So it's bizarre to me that gets this gets rolled out as some grand like tradition in the sport where you let other writers win. Like, what are you freaking talking about? That's never been how the sport is. And if you think that's how the sport is, you're misremembering it. There was no never some fairy tale time when guys were just giving away wins. And Lance, if you remember the 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 no gifts. Saying comes from when he chased Cloden down, and I believe it was the 2004 tour, I believe in the third week, where he was trying to deliver Floyd Landis, his teammate, to a stage win. It, he, they, they kind of flubbed it. Cloden gets away, and Lance just mows him down and takes a stage win. And I, I just think this is like the press doesn't like certain writers, so they kind of whip fans up into a frenzy when this happens about how mean that person is. I mean, if Gino Mader wanted to win that stage, he needed to pedal faster. I mean, it's that simple. Like he shouldn't have let the gap get that small. He should have ridden faster. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sorry if that's mean, but that's, that's sports. Like it's, it's that simple. So that's, it, I was, I could not believe how much play that got and that major cycling websites are running pieces, making Roglic defend his decision to win a stage and take time. It's absurd. So flash forward to stage eight, um, super short stage, one of the shortest stages I've ever seen. I think this might be the shortest pro race I've ever seen. Fifty something miles, ninety two kilometers. Um, they they did it in like two hours. So that's crazy. That's like a group ride you do after work. But Ruglet really the only way he could lose this is crash or get a flat tire. He crashes like immediately, <laughs> dislocates his shoulder. <laughs> Not good. But he stay. I mean he stays in the front group. He he didn't lose the race so that first. Uh, crash that dislocated his shoulder 25k to go though he crashes again um and still amazingly does doesn't lose the race because of the crash he gets back on and he uh he's almost paced back onto the back of the front group that has shackman in it uh he, he, he doesn't quite make contact and it's not totally clear what happened to me i what it looked like to me is that his team he had teammates up in the front group who didn't realize he had crashed Don't fall back quickly enough. By the time they do fall back, the gap has grown, you know, it's it's like 10 seconds, which, you know, 10 to 15 seconds, which even if they hold that, he still wins the race because of the time he took throughout the week. But, yeah, they they totally screw up the chase. Uh, They get him really close, like within touching distance of the front group, and they, they stop chasing, and they think that he has it, and he can't close the gap down. It's like a common, this is a really common mistake where, you work too hard to close a gap down too fast for a group and then you expend your energy and then uh, the person you' you're working for can't close like the last five meters by themselves so they probably should have done that a little bit in a more measured fashion and they could have gotten him back up there uh, Daniel Freib from the cycling podcast been covering the sport for a long time thinks that yumbo should have gotten on the phone and paid some riders in the front group to drop back and help them. mean, just logistically, that seems tough. I mean, we're talking about like 16 kilometers left in a stage. Like it seems like a lot of organization. It's multiple phone calls that would require multiple people to get on a race radio that a lot of, you can't really hear a race radio when you're full on anyway. Like people would, they wouldn't really understand what you're talking about. But also, I think it, it, it's kind of an interesting thing because Daniel, I think, is more used to the old school of way things used to be. And I think that could have happened in the past or Roglic just could have started. I, but the thing is, Roglic, it's not like he was in a group and he needed someone to chase. He was by himself with Nanser Buhani, who's a sprinter, a mediocre sprinter, pulling for him on a pretty tough stage. So he's not in a good place. There's no one around him to help him. So it's not like he can just start throwing money around there. I don't even know how he would have contacted people at the road, but I do think it speaks to, to something that's changed in the sport where in the past, yeah, maybe if your director tells you like, Hey, drop out of this select group. I mean, let's just look at the size of the group now. I bet it was like 20 riders where you have a chance to win this stage that could change your life. Yeah. 21 rider front group. That's also just staying in that front group is a great personal result too, that you, that you can bring up in contract negotiations. Um, if your director told you to drop out of that, like Mateo Jorgensen, American got eighth. If Movae calls him up and says, Hey man, you got to go back and help Roglic because we're going to get some money. He'd probably tell those directors to, you know, to, to shove it (laughs) and would probably say, Oh, I'm sorry. I couldn't hear you. I didn't understand what you're telling me. Um, because you know, if you do drop back and help Roglic, you know, that's not going to get brought up in your contract negotiation. Like, Te- you know, that's a big result. Eighth place in a Perry stage, like you can use that to your advantage, you know, that builds your resume. If you give up that result, the team's just going to use that against you later. They're going to say, Hey, you, I mean, you, you didn't get any results this year. So sorry, we're not going to renew your contract or we're not going to raise your pay. And I, it probably speaks to like a greater professionalism And the flip side of professionalism is that it can be somewhat ruthless where, you know, it's te- guys aren't given contracts because you know, we had this wink, wink, nudge, nudge deal, and he helped us out, and you're just going to go after the best rider who gets the best results, so I thought that was, a, I thought it was a bit fantastical from Daniel that I, just the logistics of it didn't make any sense, but I thought it was like an interesting marker in how differently he and other people, I say of that generation, I think he's like a few years older than me, but he's an old soul, he's been, he's, he knows a lot of people from like the bad old days, from the 90s, where there was more like backroom dealing, but I think part of that backroom dealing is there was less employment pressure and you know you, you could kind of get no results on a team for years and years and years and stay employed. Where it's now, it's just, it's just the pressure to get results is so high. No one in their right mind is dropping out of that 21-rider front group to help Primoz Roglic maybe save his race. Um, and I mean, all these guys, you look at this front group. These guys are like Jack Haig, Lucas Hamilton, Tej Banute eves on pair like none of those guys are going to give up a chance to win a sprint a reduced sprint at Paris-Nice for a little bit of cash it's also people get paid a lot more money than they used to with their contracts so you know getting a ten thousand dollar bonus from Roglic means less than just a top 10 at Paris-Nice. i mean and what does all this mean for so where do we go from here these are two great stages i heard it I saw a, like a very respected cycling pundit on Twitter say like, Sunday was the best day of racing we'll see in 2021. It's like, well, let's slow our roll here. Where, uh, if I quizzed you in the middle of Tour of Flanders in a normal year who won Torino Adriatico, you couldn't tell me. I mean, you, just, you forget these results so fast. Oh, and also one more thing on Ruglich is in the last 12 months, he's lost essentially Bradley Wiggins' entire Palmares, where he's lost Perry Nice were lost in the final day. Paris Nice, the Tour de France, and then dauphine Libéré, which is basically all the races that Wiggins won in, in his career. So, put you in, and and he's he's won a Grand Tour in that time and a Monument. So, just puts it into perspective like how great he is, and like I, I think the amount of disrespect he gets is crazy from the media that people just don't really they won't really recognize how good he is. And yes, he does crash. I don't think there's really anything to take away from this either. It's like, yeah, he crashes, but we kind of already know that he's susceptible to some... I don't really know what it is. I mean, he's a pretty good bike handler, but it probably just... He's ha- he's been, he hasn't been racing for as long as other people, so he's just not going to be as comfortable in groups. He's going to be more prone to a few mistakes. And I think that's what we've seen, where he crashed at the 2018... The final stage of the 2018 uh, Tour of the Basque Country and went under. Win, but it, it was actually a similar scenario to Perinice crashes at, at Dauphiné Libre, crashes at you know Sunday at Perinice. It's just guys like Peter Sagan, this doesn't happen to. Um, I mean, think about like Garrett Thomas, another rider who crashes all the time. But that's got, that should be baked into our expectations. I don't think there's much to learn from this. Probably the long story short of this is Primoz Roglic is going to be great in 2021 possibly even better than 2020. So we're actually, we're, we're hurtling, I think the two big takeaways, hurtling towards like a fantastic classic season with this bizarro showdown between Woot Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool, even though they're not really one for one. They're actually, they're kind of turning into the Boonin and Cancellara of the modern era where those guys were seen as like huge classics rivals, but their, their rider types were actually incredibly different. Where Cancellara was a time trialist and Boonen was, I guess, like a reformed sprinter kind of the same thing here where woots rider profile is is really becoming more cancel like cancelar who can climb um like a steady state power guy i say that he's winning bunch sprints so i don't really know what to think i don't I don't quite know what's going on with, with Woot van ar and he's like oh i'm just a diesel engine who can time trial and climb oh and I'll, I'll win a bunch sprint here and there um and then Vanderpool is like the guy's a temple to fast twitch muscle fibers and doesn't seem to be able to time trial, but then he can go on fifty K solo breakaways. So I don't quite understand what's happening there either. It's almost like his solo breaks are he'll like fast like he uses his fast switch muscle fibers to like he'll just hammer like climb like four or five minute climbs and then he can kind of let off and then he'll like he almost like makeshifts a chime trial through fast switch efforts. So the big two big takeaways are we're hurtling towards a great classic shakeup or great classics face off with uh, Vanderpool and Van Aert, uh, it's going to be amazing. And then hurtling towards a Great Tour de France showdown between Roglic and Pogachar. So uh, really, only positives for cycling fans coming out of this. Uh, we have San Remo on Saturday. I'd say hot take here: worst of the monuments. The thing is a snooze fest. I mean, just if you pull up and look at this, it goes from Milan obviously to San Remo, which is on the Mediterranean. You go through the breadbasket of Italy. It's like an industrial. The engine of the country, I'd say, from Milano to uh, there's like a mountain range that pops you up and over into the Mediterranean. Like, this race is so long. It's 300 kilometers long. There's a mountain climb, there's a mountain pass that I've never even seen televised. I believe they're going to televise it from start to finish this year. I don't recommend watching that. No one needs to see that because really nothing happens until you hit the Trapessa with it's like 30K to go. I mean, that's it's the beauty of Milan San Remo. You can just pop it on and 30K to go. You don't miss a thing. So uh it, it's a nice race in that respect. And it's a beautiful, it's beautiful when they get down to the coast. They're they're riding on these like roads carved into the sea cliffs on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, very, very photogenic last 40k. And the fort it's it's thrilling. I mean, there's a Trapresa, uh, a bunch of people attack. No one will stay over, no one will stay away, but you might think they will. And every year I'm like, there's a guy solo between the Trapressa and the Poggio, which is starts like 10 K from the finish finishes maybe five K six K from the line. And it's a really, really, really terrifying descent into the town of San Remo. And then it finishes on, I believe the Via Roma. I think it still finishes on that. This is beautiful straight away. Um, gorgeous race, but you think someone's going to stay away over the Poggio. They never do. Um, even the person, if someone will attack on the Poggio, like someone super, like a big favorite, like Vanderpoel will certainly attack on the Poggio. Um, except for Vincenzo Nibali in 2018. It's very rare that that person wins. Um, the, the more likely scenario is, if you remember uh, Simon Garin's his win, I believe that was in 2012, when Cancellara attacked and he's just glued to Cancellara's wheel. To me, this is like the big... Vanderpool's going to be the clear favorite because he just looks like he's the best rider in the world at the moment, and this race on paper suits his abilities. Uh, that 2012 race might be a template for what's going to happen here, where uh, Vanderpool's going to attack on the Bogio. someone's going to be glued to his wheel, one or two riders, and he just doesn't have, he's just not the type of guy maybe to, that will, Try to shake them or call their bluff. He'll just keep going, going, going. I'm I'm Matthew Vanderpool. I can beat these guys in a sprint after pulling, and he might be able to. But, you know, it's professional cycling. There are limits to what you can only do so much work and still win. (laughs) I say that he did win Amstel Gold doing exactly that. So he'll play a part. What's interesting is he did this race last year. It's like you kind of forget Vanderpool had a weird classic season last year before he won Tour Flanders. He kind of got an an anonymous 13th place here last year. Um, I expect him to go better than that. Woot Van Aert won the race. I I think he's going to have something to say about it if it comes down to a sprint. It's hard to imagine Woot in his current form. As we saw today, the guy is absolutely flying, getting dropped on the Poggio. I mean, I would actually bet good money that Woot Van Aert does not get dropped on that final climb. And it's going to be hard for anyone to beat him when it comes down to a sprint. Um, Vanderpool's a good, wins a lot of sprints. I went back and looked at the data, though. He actually wins very few flat sprints. It's, it's like he's won, I think, four flat world tour races in his career. And they're counting Amstel Gold as gold flat, even though I think that is slightly uphill. So he actually doesn't have a great history of winning flat sprints. Um, obviously, he can. He has the physical capabilities to do it. But I really like Van Aert if it comes down to a sprint. Obviously, this is San Remo. Anyone could win this thing. That's it's so hard. It's a good chance neither Van Der Poel or Van Aert win. I don't see Pogachar on the start list. I would actually, I would bet that they end up sending him, and he would be a good dark horse pick over the Poggio. Obviously, Philippe Gilbert needs to win this to complete the monument sweep, so he's been building form slowly and well. Um, he would be another outsider pick. Really anyone could win this thing. It's kind of crazy to try to predict it. If it comes down to a sprint, I mean I guess Kristoff could yeah, you got it's like all these guys like Kristoff can come out of the woodwork. I mean Pascal Ackerman could win, Sam Bennett could win. It is I think it's a little overrated as a Sprinters classic. Those guys end up getting dropped more than uh, not on the on at least the Poggio. The suppress is hard too. I mean, a lot of Sprinters get dropped on that. Sam Bennett could will probably get dropped on the Suppressor. But yeah, pop this thing on on Saturday with like 30k to go. Uh, it's a great it's, it's I, I actually I called it a boring. It's it's definitely objectively the worst of the monuments. There's a nice like there's a nice comfort with it where it's so predictable that and you, you never you're never like scrambling to figure out what happened before you got up and turned it on. Um it, it, it's a fun race, so it's just uh and, and so many different types of riders can win it and no one really gets dropped. So or it's it's going to be fun. Uh, I, I, my pick, my pick, my official pick, who I'm putting money down on, Woot Van Aert. But, good gun. Go I mean, I obviously don't be surprised if Vanderpool wins this. He should be your favorite. Woot Van Aert, I would actually be a little bit surprised, but just think he's got, uh, after what he showed in the time trial today, and winning that bunch sprint, it's hard to imagine him getting dropped, and then we know he can sprint, so. I'm just using that logic to then pick him to win. All right. Well, thanks for joining this week and have, have a good weekend of watching Milan San Remo and I'll be back next week. Bye.